facing into the pain is important. That yeah. allowing our hearts to break open allows them to hold more and not simply more pain, but also more joy and beauty and awe and wonder. And we can't numb just one part of ourselves and pick up the good emotions, good emotions, and hold them near and dear and then pretend that the rest doesn't exist. I just don't think our bodies work that way. So in order to really be fully alive and fully embracing this world, we're going to have to bear witness to what's yeah. being lost. Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi. Today, we're going to delve into the topic of reconnecting with Earth and soul amidst the climate heating and the climate chaos that is becoming our norm. Joining me on this journey today is Leah Rampey, author of the new book, Earth and Soul, Reconnecting Amid Climate Chaos. Leah is a teacher, professor, corporate and nonprofit executive and leadership consultant. Her growing commitment to reweaving soul and earth has been informed by leading pilgrimages, retreats, and her extensive reading and research. Leah lives in a co-housing community in Shepherdstown, West Virginia with her husband, David. They have two adult children. I'm so thrilled to have her here today. Leah, welcome to the show. Thank you, Karina. I'm so happy to be here with you. Now, I want to begin with that last part of your bio. Tell me about this co-housing community that you call home. Yes. So the physical presence of this co-housing community has been here for about five years. And co-housing means that we have an intentional community. We planned it together. We make our decisions together. We put in our sweat equity to make it work. We have people who are doing community gardening and others who are taking care of our trails through our conservation area and cooking meals once a week. And it's all sorts of ways in which we collaborate and cooperate around the principle of community and earth care and being good to our community at large. Well, I love that. This won't have been the first time that we featured a guest who lived in a community like that. So it's really nice to see that there's more happening along those lines, coast to coast. The other one we featured was in Colorado. And I'm forgetting the author's name now, but he wrote a work of fiction, eco-fiction. I'll figure it out before this show is up and be sure to share it with everybody because it was really an interesting read. It was called Tickling the Bear, and I'm just blanking on his name right now. So mm -hmm. we'll come back to that. Now, we are here today to talk about your book, Earth and Soul. And I really wanted to start by learning what inspired you to write it and release it now and really who you had in mind when you were crafting this incredible book. Yeah, that's a great place to start. Thank you for that. Well, I guess the simple answer of what inspired me to write a book is that this is the kind of conversation that I wanted to be in. 
I think the way in which we live in these incredibly challenging edge times is very important. And I don't think we have a lot of guideposts for how we live amid the chaos, Mm -hmm. the climate craziness, the loss of biodiversity and ecosystems. And it just wasn't cutting it for me to just go around and talk about climate change. It wasn't as inspiring as I wanted it to be for people to feel like they knew how to make change. So I started out with the idea of the people who were on retreats that I've led, who were really pondering this and wanting to reconnect. And then I thought about people who are working so hard in the environmental area, like you and many of the people you've had on the show, and yet who are feeling that eco-grief and loss and probably frustration that things don't move as quickly and smoothly as they know is needed for us to make a huge difference that we're trying to make. So they came into my sights and thought about young people who many of them are heartsick about the state of our world and what those of us who are my age are leaving to them. So those were my audience members that I had in mind, but really it could be anybody who cares about what's happening in the world right now. Well, I just want to say that so many of the books in this space are well-intentioned. Nobody comes into this space to write a book about the earth, the climate crisis, the battles that we're all facing, trying to enable us to feel like we have a semblance of control or can do some good in the face of what can seem insurmountable challenges. But so few of them are so well written. And I just want to say that because it makes it easy to read and actually a joy. I was telling you as we started this, I mean, in the first 11 pages, I think I found a new term or something I had not heard before, which doesn't happen every day. The, what is it? World Wood Web? No, Wood, wood Wide Web. web. <laughs> yeah. And I, said, I wish reading. I'd coined that. That would be lovely if I had invented that. But apparently Nature Magazine did when they were writing about the wonderful scientist, Suzanne Samard, who was kind of cracking the code on what was going on in the underground fungal network and the incredible ways that trees were communicating with each other and exchanging nutrients and water and so on. Yeah. So that wood wide web story, and I have the advanced reader copy. So the page number may have changed, but we're talking about page 19 here. And what's really interesting about this story, perhaps this inspired me to eat some more mushrooms this morning. I had some lion's mane and prep for this interview. But you talk about the fact that you'd see some forests where the trees that are really leafy and get a lot of sun in the summer, they might be crowding out some of those evergreens. And the evergreens are actually getting carbon via this mycelium network or the mushroom network underground Mm -hmm. to the conifers. And then those evergreens and conifers are actually producing more carbon during the winter because they're evergreen. And then the exchange happens and they're feeding the carbon to the trees that don't have any leaves right then that are deciduous. So that's why the term was called 
wood wide web, which is really unbearably cute. But to <laughs> me, this is something where it's like, I learned something new and in the first 20 pages and it's fun to read. Like that will keep me turning the pages that will keep me engaged in reading. Even as I'm hearing some of these stories that frankly help me to navel gaze a little bit because it's like, wow, somebody else is feeling this way. It's mm -hmm. I'm not alone here in feeling mm -hmm. completely out of sorts when it comes to the fact that I have atmospheric rivers now hitting my central coast of California every year. My home office flooded three times in the past two years. I had to undertake some pretty massive construction projects at home in order to solve for that. And this year was a test. And so far we're good, but that's $30,000 that I luckily had that many people don't. And so yeah. it feels like we are just struggling to stand still in some cases. I'd love for you to talk about that and perhaps some of the stories that you confront during these pages. Yeah. So there was a lot in what you said. Thank you for that. It's one of the reasons, what you, the way you just laid that out, that I'm not particularly fond of the word sustainability. It feels to me that, and I know it can be used well-intentioned and in an appropriate way. I simply think that sometimes we use it as a way of saying, maybe if I put solar panels on my roof, that will be enough and I won't have to change anything else. Now, I have solar panels. <laughs> On my roof. I think they're important. I also don't think they're sufficient, that they keep us sustainable in terms of the way we are now living. So if we have not faced the kinds of things that you are talking about, the atmospheric rivers, the derechos, the firebomb, I mean, the terms are just going on and on and scientists are running out of interesting ways to describe the unprecedented kinds of weather we're facing. If we haven't confronted that, I think we are in a very privileged position and a lucky position. So both because perhaps of our economic status or the color of our skin, we are able to live in a place that is less prone to rising tides or wildfires or whatever, but not necessarily, not necessarily. So luck may play a, a big part in that. My intention in the storytelling is to invite people to fall in love with the living world. So I tell stories about trees, as you've mentioned, and birds and beavers and all sorts of plants and animals because I think there's incredible awe and wonder in the story of everything from soil to wind and rain and the beauty in the living world. So I'm really inviting us to be awestruck by the genius, the wisdom, and the amazing beauty of this world we live in. It's I am not the first to say if we don't love it, we won't work with it. I'm not going to say we won't work to save it because to me that kind of puts us in the like it's our central role. It's a human-centric way of looking at it. And I want us to think about how we collaborate with the living world and draw on her wisdom and align ours with it so that we can co-create a more vibrant future. But I'm also telling stories of people 
And I'm telling a lot of my own stories in there. In many ways, it's a vulnerable book for me. Somebody asked me if it was hard to write. And I said, well, it's not so hard to write the stories about myself. It's hard to imagine you reading them. (laughs) So the intention in weaving those stories is to say, we're all in this. And I, the reason I'm showing some of my vulnerabilities is I want you to be okay saying, oh, I didn't know that. And I've really made mistakes and I want to learn. Well, I love the idea of co-creating that future. That is the ethos of this show, right? We're inviting people to care more so we can create a better world. But even so, it can feel a lot like, well, I'm one person. I'm one person. What effect can I really have? Did I really create this problem? I'm sitting here as someone in my later 40s looking at a generation who is pointing up the ladder at past generations to say, it's you guys. And I'm sitting here thinking in some moments, well, but I've done everything right, everything I could in order to ensure that I didn't leave such a huge footprint behind. But modern living is also put in us in such a capacity where it's impossible to live without leaving a footprint. And so I think there's a tremendous amount of kind of blame that's being tossed around and also just the pain of understanding that regardless when you draw a breath, you are part of it. And so I guess my underlying question really for you and, and it's one I often think through too, but how can we head forward with some faith that our actions can have a positive effect as, as opposed to just a negative one for every breath we draw? Yes, yes. Well, I mean, really, I have great empathy for that. I think it is so easy for us to feel that it's hopeless. And when we do, then I think the tendency is to want to numb ourselves to the pain or look away, just pretend it doesn't exist, go on about our business. Just because who wants to reflect on the depth and breadth of these challenges that we're facing. And yet what I'm really arguing is, make it two points here. One is that facing into the pain is important, that Mm -hmm. allowing our hearts to break open allows them to hold more and not simply more pain, but also more joy and beauty and awe and wonder. And we can't numb just one part of ourselves and pick up the good emotions, good emotions, and hold them near and dear, and then pretend that the rest doesn't exist. I just don't think our bodies work that way. So in order to really be fully alive and fully embracing this world, we're going to have to bear witness to what's being lost. So So that's one. Yeah, go ahead. I think we can connect this conversation to a discussion about an anti-consumerist movement, because as you are in a co-living space, you're also, in a way, supporting this move from what is the conventional American wisdom of how we live, where it's like two and a half people and a dog and a house with four walls and separated from everybody with your living spaces and your outdoor yards or something along these lines. People who live in apartments next to each other, but don't ever even say hi when they come out of the door. It's a different way of living. Mm -hmm. And I have 
featured on this podcast a guest at one time, Stephanie Safarian, who has a podcast called Sustainable Minimalists, right? And she shared with me on this show that sustainability and minimalism aren't necessarily part of, like, you're not always at the center of them in that Venn diagram. There are parts of each of these movements that can be separate, which I agree with, but I also think that we are living in such a world where the engine of consumerism is what drives employment and our economic system and what job you have and what products you take and what your status is. And all of that is so interwoven in how we live today that it's like we have to break apart our societal constructs and work to rebuild them into something that is different in order to actually build a future that can regenerate, that can be connected mm -hmm. to earth and that can move us from the climate chaos that we live in today, where there's a new term every week, from the bomb cyclone that hit Capitola and put all of the town underwater that was recent in history here in the central coast of California, to the atmospheric rivers that are now, I think we had 11 or 13 of them last year in the central coast of California. I'll probably see as many again this year where we just get all of the water at once dumping out of the sky so much that there's nowhere for it to go. And that's why we're seeing things like flooding in places that are on hills. Like I'm on a hill, my home flooded, mm -hmm. the low point of my home flooded because the water had nowhere to go and it was coming so fast that what will water do? It finds the way down as quick as possible. Right. <laughs> I know this is one part commentary, but I'm just really hoping that you can help unveil what you think that unmaking and remaking can look like. Yeah. Well, so let me say that I wish that could happen quickly, that <laughs> unmaking and remaking. And yet that is such an incredible change that I suspect it's going to happen over many, many lifetimes. Mm -hmm. And in my lifetime, what I'm hoping for is that I can begin to make some headway toward that kind of a vision of a future world that is about living in a way that everyone, every being can thrive. Robin Wall Kimmer used the term mutual thriving, and that's become a favorite of mine. So how can we live in a way that that is a goal, that we see that as important? So it can be so discouraging. We can't do it all. And this is the sole part of the conversation. I think that each of us has a journey to understand what is our gift to this world? What is the essence of who we are when we are at our truest self, our best self? And what is the gift we have to offer out of that space? Because I can really identify with anybody who wants to run around doing absolutely everything they can until you're exhausted. And I'm kind of in that space. I can fall there very easily to be signing every petition that comes along and writing everybody in the government who could make a change and lobbying for this, that, and the other that are so important. And it's not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just that who I am and the biggest gifts that I have, I think is really part of my conversation. And what is my gift? Maybe it is about helping people understand those soil connections. Maybe it's about planting 
my own garden and encouraging others to do it. Maybe I'm the one who's standing in front of the trees that are about to be cut down or climbing them like Julia Butterfly Hill so many years ago. Mm-hmm. Your gift is bringing people to the conversation in these podcasts. And I think we have to stop beating ourselves up that we are not doing everything. We are planting seeds. We are creating stepping stones to a better future. We don't know exactly what that future can look like. And for me, that's where hope comes from. Hope is not this like gift that comes out of a particular incident. It is a sense that the living world works in ways we can never understand, far beyond our comprehension. And it has agency and it has wisdom. And if we can begin to live alongside and live into that space, bringing the best of who we are to that, we hope be able to create some of those seeds for the future in days far beyond our our lifetime. Well, thank you for bringing up Julia Butterfly Hill. I've always admired her tenacity, Mm, um, just being atop that redwood for as long as she was to stand with it and say, not this tree, you know, to draw attention to the problem of deforestation with old growth redwoods and to make it real for people who hadn't thought of it before. And so I think that she's an incredible example of an advocate who just finally had had enough when it came to one thing. Mm -hmm. And I think each of us has to pick our one thing in a way. Mm -hmm. I also am likely to run around like a chicken with my head cut off trying to solve all these problems. But I really just focus for me on trying to reduce waste, to reduce consumption, to buy used, which means sometimes my kids want a new toy and they're getting something that I found on the marketplace in my local area and picked up for a fraction of what it would have cost new. And I'm therefore not putting new plastic into the crazy environment that we live in. I also recently, and this is perhaps something that will inspire someone, I realized that I really love white clothing, but I'm really terrible as a coffee drinker. And so all of my white clothing Mm -hmm. is stained. And so I was looking at a few shirts that had just gotten dingy or had one too many spills or bleach wasn't successful in getting the stain out. And I was like, you know, I think I could dye this. And so I purchased some black dye and dyed these items of clothing because I was like, I'll wear this again if it's black. Mm And sure enough, now I know that clothing isn't going to end up in landfill, at least for a while longer. And part of the reason that I chose to do that is it's just, I don't like the idea of something that is otherwise usable, just sitting in the trash. Mm -hmm. And I could have taken it to Goodwill or some other donation spot, but it would have been thrown away because it's stained. Mm -hmm. Things that are stained or have holes in them don't actually get resold or reused. So where I am now making this decision to head forward is to say, okay, I repair my kids' clothes when they're mostly in cotton. And when something gets old and unusable, sometimes I turn it into waxed cloth to then use as seal my Tupperware and things like that. That's really easy to do. In fact, all you have to do is cut it into squares and put it in a glass pan with some like wax on top of it and put it in the oven at about 300 degrees for a little bit and it all melts together. Well, thank <laughs> so, you for that. I did not know that. 
Yeah, yeah. so easy. And it doesn't have to just be cotton. It could be mm -hmm. synthetic materials too, but I prefer to use cotton mm -hmm. for this sort of thing, right? And so you can get soy-based wax or you can get beeswax. It really doesn't matter. I think the beeswax holds up a little bit better, but you can essentially wax your fabrics and then reuse them for however much longer. And this just, again, reduces our waste. And if you're using something like beeswax and cotton, eventually that can be composted. So, I mean, I'm not zero waste. I have this aspiration of getting there. I think it's unrealistic for me to be at that point with my two young boys at home. But I've also met people who have children and are zero waste. And I kind of just look at them fondly and say, wow, how did you do that? <laughs> Go team. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. each of us finds our journey. Yeah. So um, I would love for you to take perhaps one of the stories that you tell in your book and share it with us so people get a better idea of perhaps a story that they can expect to hear. Mm. Can I say something about what you just said first, though? Oh, of course. Yes. About the work that you're doing, because I think that's so impressive. And I just want to note that Robin Wall Kimmerer, in her fabulous book, Writing Sweetgrass, and I think she's such an important teacher for us all, talks about the tradition of the seventh fire and how do we move forward into a new and more vibrant world. And the wisdom of the elders is before we can go forward, we must go back along the trail and pick up some of what is valuable that was left behind. And so when you're doing things like what you just explained, the idea of reusing, it sends me thinking about my parents who grew up in the Depression, and that was what you did. We talk about this sometime in our community. You know, the idea of preserving food is kind of stepping back along that trail and saying, what, what was good that we left behind somewhere? I think we got sold this bill of goods about how women should be living life of more leisure and this impression that doing things from scratch or using and reusing, there's just a whole host of kind of Madison Avenue advertising that took us into a world that was about being consumable, really, and using the resources of the living world. Well, so, well, I want to yeah. make a bridge to that comment before we then move into you sharing a story from your book, yes. too. I take this very seriously, and I think perhaps it was endemic in me as a little girl growing up. My mother read me this book by McCloskey called Blueberries for Sal, okay? And that story is one where mama is taking her young daughter onto this blueberry hill to forage for blueberries to can them for the winter. And that's the whole purpose of the story. And they come across bears that are also foraging and that are eating the blueberries to store as fat for the winter. And it is such a beautiful, simple, award-winning book that I kept with me in my mind and in my heart for years. It's something that I've read to my children. And to further this connection with the color blue, there was Tommy DePaola's story of the blue bonnets. I forget the exact title of the book, but I'll also include it, which had to do with sacrifice. And the thing that this young tribeswoman chose to do 
was to sacrifice her favorite thing so that the rains could come and the blue bonnets could bloom, right? I think that our culture has lost connection with the idea of sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I'm working to bring back into the vernacular with my kids because the world of immediate gratification doesn't actually breed appreciation. And appreciation is something that breeds happiness. Like we know that the spirit of thankfulness is what brings us forward into actual enjoyment. And so I have felt for some time that this kind of rapidity with which we lead our culture, this disposable nature of things, and the fact that we're so cycled through for this immediate gratification moment in our daily lives is part and parcel to why we're so stressed and why we're so, you know, our attention and focus aren't there, our gratification, our personal satisfaction, our moods, all of these things, I think are connected to the how of we're, the way we're living. And so I take it as a practice now with my children who are six and nine to build in these moments and teach them mm -hmm. these to moderate, to say, oh, our blueberries that we got at the store, we didn't move through them quickly enough. Well, maybe we should go ahead and make them into a preserve and then show them how to do that so that they don't end up in the compost pile and they can be consumed. Or when I go on my walks in the springtime, especially, I collect pine cones that are green. And I've learned to make magulio, which is a syrup that you make with pine cones and brown sugar. And it's delectable and fun. And because I make pancakes and crepes and things like that from scratch at home, the kids get to drizzle a tiny bit of this on because it's piney and potent, but also delicious. Gets them to consume less sugar while they're getting a little treat at the same time and be connected to the woods that surround our home. And I feel like these moments, these wow. things that I do are actually instilling in my kids an appreciation for the natural world. Mm -hmm an appreciation for where food comes from and then reading books like that story of the blue bonnet by Tommy De Paola or blueberries for Sal by, I think his name's Robert McCloskey mm -hmm. that they are, these things are carrying through and will live on in the next generation. And I just see that as my responsibility as a parent. And I so want to honor that Karina. That is, I mean, it really warms my heart to think of you creating this way of interacting with your children that gives them this broader view of the world than more toys. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, I don't know if you remember reading in one of the parts, the statistic that more children in the UK are injured, or sent to the hospital these days because they've fallen out of bed than those who've fallen out of trees. Oh, I mean, isn't that the he, truth of it? It breaks my mm -hmm. heart, you know, in, in, in some respects you think, well, that's kind of funny, but it's not really, it's not because not all children are having that experience that your children are of understanding there's a relationship with this living world. And then it does feed us. I mean, it's easy to lose track of where your food comes from, just as one simple example. So I really honor what you're doing. Thank you. Well, my hope is to get them, we're going to work on building a tree house on our property. This is another kind of page from my, my deck when I talk about preservation 
I have oak trees on my property and mm. oak trees are likely to split when we have extreme weather, especially like the extreme weather that we're having today. And that can be devastating to the ecosystem. It can kill the tree and you can remove a lot of shade, which is also creating these kind of microclimates and underneath their, their boughs. And so I worked with an arborist to cable our oak tree so that the, that it's less likely to split. Right. And so far our trees are surviving and they're thriving. They seem to be doing just fine. And I can, I have this dream of building that tree house to engage my kids again and the undeveloped part of our land just a little bit more and to offer them that moment of independence that they don't, they aren't as likely to get in today's world of helicopter parenting. I work really hard not to be that helicopter parent because if one of my children falls out of a tree and breaks an arm, that's an experience and a story too. If they, however, tumbled out of bed and broke something, it probably means they're not getting outside and exercising their bodies enough and they've got brittle bones as a result, you know? Yeah. I mean, we'd prefer nobody broke anything, but right, of course. Just, but yeah. But I love that your children are out there. So that makes me feel good. <laughs> Gives me warm feelings about that. Yeah, so I you asked so. for a story. I did. Would you I like me to read story. a story or tell the story from the book? Why don't you tell it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, there's many I could tell, but one that I tell about is a story about sparrows. And this is in China in the 50s at a time when food was scarce and people were hungry. And government officials were very concerned because they saw the sparrows were in the field eating the grain. Hmm. So the response was, we need to eliminate the sparrows, because if we eliminate the sparrows, then there will be more grain for the people. So government officials encouraged people to kill sparrows. And that is, in fact, what they did. It was a whole campaign to eliminate sparrows, to pull fledglings out of their nest, to shoot the sparrows as they saw them, to break the eggs. There's a story of a group of Sparrows who took refuge in the Polish embassy and a band of individuals stood outside banging pots and pans until the sparrows were so exhausted they simply fell dead from the trees. Now, you might think then that the people had more food, but that in fact was not what happened. There was a whole invasion of locusts that came in, settled in the, in the grain fields, and were just decimating the crops. One of the ways in which locusts are controlled, they're eaten by sparrows. But because all the sparrows had been eliminated, in fact, it led, a billion of them, by the way, it led to actually greater loss of crops and greater hunger. And many people died. The Chinese government was forced to bring in new sparrows from the Soviet Union to replace the ones that they had destroyed to try to rebalance the ecosystem. The point I make in this story is not like, oh, aren't we good and aren't we smart and shouldn't I feel really good that I've never killed off a bunch of sparrows, but rather that when we don't take the time to understand the living world around us, no matter how good our intentions, we can easily make things much worse. And I go on to give some personal stories of where I have done just that. I mean, you could take a very simple one 
of how for years we plowed our garden or rototilled it or dug it up in some way because we didn't realize that all of that we were just talking about earlier, that whole network, that whole fungal network and that whole vibrant ecosystem of all sorts of millions and millions and millions of everything from bacteria to small critters to earthworms were being killed and that they were the source of rich soil that would actually nourish our plants and increase the nutritional value of them. So when we jump in, this is my point, when we jump in with our sense that we know best and we should fix what's wrong in the world, I mean, we have to be really careful that we pause to listen and learn and probably sounds corny, but really to ask the world, whatever that part of the world is, what do you need? What do you need before we leap in with our great wisdom? So it's a sad story. It's a sad story to think about all of those birds being killed. I think there are versions of such sad stories that are happening all the time, whether that's dredging swamps for parking lots or whether that's cutting down trees for toilet paper or in the Amazon so that we can uh, have more cattle grazing there and satisfy our need for cheap beef. We could go on and on about examples where there may be a reason that sounds really good to the individuals who are taking the actions, but the ramifications are so painful. Well, I have a really great example of what we could do that could change everything. And this one is one that is our, our scientists are hard at work trying to figure out how to reverse global warming, right? How do we get the space where this global heating problem starts to cool down so that we have less extreme weather and so that we can survive and thrive? Yeah. And one of them is to throw up so much particulate matter into the sky that the sky then reflects more of the light. And therefore, we can cool down a bit. But the ramifications of this, number one, is that the sky would no longer be blue. It would rather be white. And we can only imagine what other effects that could have. Perhaps we could even get to a space where there was simply too much of it, and the global cooling was too vast, that we ended up in being in something like a nuclear winter, mm -hmm. that was ultimately the reason for the extinction of the mass extinction of dinosaurs about 64 million years ago, right? So we could think that we've created the perfect solution mm -hmm. and only have messed up the fragile systems that we're working with even more. I really believe that we need to look at the sound systems that nature provides to lean into those sound systems like photosynthesis and the ability of carbon to be sequestered in our soils, to really focus on those particular things that we know support natural ecosystem rebounding and also that support biodiversity and that biodiversity supports a balance because that's the thing that life is always striving for. Life is striving for a balance. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> I mean, I feel very simpatico with what you're saying. I, I think there's some sense that we keep hearing that technology, you know, we're going to innovate our way out of this. 
and no one has figured out how to begin to approach the incredible effectiveness and wisdom of a tree. Yeah. Yeah. And I might have to innovate my way out of the next series of power outages here in my home, but that's just slapping a Band-Aid on a problem. That's not solving the problem. And yeah. so, I mean, I think you're right to say it's probably going to take us generations to fix this problem because it took us many generations to get to where we are today. But the awakening that is happening now for people who are becoming aware and who are striving to become more informed and who are thinking about consumerism as something we shouldn't necessarily be marching toward blindly. I think it's people like us that are going to ultimately push for that and, and help us to reach a better future yeah. so that our grandchildren can enjoy it. Exactly. And I just want to add that I think sometimes that consumerism is a part of that dulling ourselves. Mm. It's a way we try to feel better because we're lonely and it may be lonely for other human companionship, but I think we're also lonely for our connection to the world around us. Well, to that point too, I think whenever I'm feeling overwhelmed and whenever I'm feeling like I might be a little alone or lonely, a hike into the woods changes everything in my mindset. Doesn't it? Yeah. 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 Just yeah. spending some time around nature. I call her my friend Maple. It's this... Um, this is very interesting old tree that is nearly falling down that the entire forest is probably supporting through their mycelium networks, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. she's leaning really far to one side and her trunk is covered in all sorts of beautiful mosses. And somebody has taken the trouble to cable her the way I have cabled my oak trees. <laughs> oh, so wow. yeah. I'm just like, they don't want her to fall either. And mm -hmm. it's very interesting because that's an expensive fix. You know, somebody yeah. had to decide that they wanted yeah. to do that. So every time that we have a big storm that comes through, I walk through and, and I show my gratitude for this tree and this little mm -hmm. spot of the woods that is at the base of a private drive. And I just walk up to the tree and put my hand on it, look up at all of them and just say, thank you. Yeah. Because yeah. this is part of my natural world and mm -hmm. they contribute to the air that I breathe in a real present sense every day. It's in my neighborhood that helps me feel more connected. And that practice of gratitude is something that is scientifically proven to help people be more happy. <laughs> so Indeed, indeed, indeed. And I would say we can't discount that perhaps we're making the trees feel happier too. You know, I think about the trees, they're exchanging their aerosols, right, to warn mm -hmm. when there are insects coming. And so I'm just imagining when you go out and you're being this, this loving kindness, that there's a different sense that the trees are taking in than if someone is a threat to them. So I don't think we should discount just because they can't speak our language. <laughs> That there's no knowledge of our intention. For sure, yeah. for sure, we're breathing in whatever they're emitting. So, yeah, that's a beautiful thought. Yeah. Now, I am going to gladly post this book along with the links to where they can find out more about you, including your website, which is simply leahrampy.com. Do you have any actions that you would like to inspire people to take or, or parting words that you'd like to share? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think the action is what's near and dear to your heart. It's that 
the freedom to not feel that you have to do everything, to listen really deeply for what your invitation is, and to embrace that as full-heartedly as you possibly can, and to be okay with trusting that if we are all doing that, that there is a weaving together of our actions that Earth will support us and sustain us in. So I, like you, have all these specific things that I love, like local food and growing our own gardens and changing our lawns to being vibrant food systems for uh, local critters who need it. I mean, those are things that really speak to me. And so I'm always wanting to encourage people to do that. But really, I want people to do what they're called to do. So I think that's the invitation. Well, I think that's perfect. Listen to yourself, commune with nature, figure out what it is that you're called to do, and make that your personal mission to respect earth with heart and soul. Mm -hmm. So again, thank you for writing this amazing book. I love it. I love it. I'm going to keep reading it. I have not finished it yet. So I still have some joy in completing its work. Thank you. And I just encourage you to keep going with this message. I'll gladly make any introductions that I can to help you get this out there because again, eloquent and beautiful and inspiring all in one. Thank you. Yeah, and a thank deep, you. deep, deep bow of gratitude to you for all that you're doing for bringing voices to this world and your own personal commitment to social impact and to regeneration. So, and what you're doing with your children. Thank you. For, yeah. yeah. I, I want to do better. I always want to do better, but isn't that the curse of parenthood? <laughs> <laughs> we always want to do better. We could be doing a little better, but you know, we try. Yeah. So. yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I have so enjoyed today's conversation with Leah Rampey. So as always, I will share all the ways that you connect with Leah on her social channels, as well as where you can find this book. I will put it up in my Amazon shop as well, so you can find it easily. And anytime that people purchase from my Amazon shop, a very small portion, I'm talking a few pennies, go to support the show. I know a lot of people shop on Amazon, and while it might not be the earth-friendliest way to go, I always support people going to their local bookstores and asking for books have them order the book for you because that will help more people discover the book as well. If you request a book at your local bookstore, that often means that the store will choose to stock it in inventory, put it on a nice little new release display and get more exposure for that author's important work. I'm going to do that in my local bookshop at Bookshop Santa Cruz. And I hope that some of you will join me in doing that same effort. Now, as we close today's show, I really want to invite everyone here to share their thoughts with me. What is it that you're doing? What is your one thing that you're going to champion? Have you figured it out yet? Or even if you're still in the process, I'd love for you to share that. You could go ahead and share a social post, tag this episode, or you can send me an email to hello at caremorebebetter.com. I'm also always available on Instagram, and I've even been known to post a thing or two on TikTok. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope that you'll go ahead and leave us a five-star rating or review. And if you didn't like the show, tell me what you didn't like too. The feedback is imperative. I want to keep serving all of you with great content and great guests. Thank you listeners now and always for being a part of this pod and this community, because together we really can do so much more. 
we can care more, we can be better, we can even connect deeply with Earth, discover our true purpose, and create that better world together. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good. Thank you.